Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Hope you enjoyed uh, our latest episode of my speech from Shanghai. Really enjoyed the feedback that we got from those of you who gave it. I uh, hope you found it interesting. Um, as you know, the Peace Building Podcast explores the best processes and ideas of how to build common ground in complex systems. And I have the perfect gig these days um, that is incorporating all of that. Uh, it is involves intercultural conflict to start with, um, and as it shows up uh, domestically in the United States around uh, color, race, identity, and then how that intersects um, with similar issues at the international level between Palestinians and Israelis, involves coaching many folks throughout the system, some mediated conversations, some facilitating a large group difficult conversation, and then uh, doing some whole systems systemic uh, work um, to create a um, an organization that moves beyond blame and is more collaborative and more win-win in its focus. So been super interesting. I wish I could talk more specifically about it, but you know, that's the way these things go. So I have with me Charles Crawford, uh, who was the UK ambassador to Bosnia and Herzegovina from 1996 to 1998, Serbia and Montenegro from 2001 to 2003, and finally to Poland 2003 to 2007. He also previously served as a British diplomat in the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, South Africa, and Russia. I got to know Charles um, when we were working together in Afghanistan last year. He was heading up uh, teaching senior women leaders uh, speech uh, speech writing and giving presentation skills. He's amazing at that. I really recommend you check out his book, Speeches for Leaders. I learned so much from him about um, giving speeches. Got me much more interested in public speaking. Um, anyway, there's a wealth of stuff on his website. If you're interested, um, check it out. Anyway, he also is like a super, super great storyteller and a super fun person to hang out with and go have a beer with after work and listen to all the different anecdotes he has about life, at which he seems to remember everything with total clarity. I don't know how that happens, but anyway, he does. So, um, Anyway, it's really an honor and a pleasure to have Charles on the podcast. Uh, he's going to talk about um, his time in Bosnia in um, as a um, his or the early days as an ambassador in war-torn Bosnia, and um, you know he's going to tell it with with great detail and color about you know being part of an amb- the ambassadorial group that was trying to bring parties together um, across um, national, uh, well, really across ethnic lines. So I'll just give you an overview of some of the anecdotes that he, Charles mentions that uh, stood out to me. You know, one is just uh, the early days of him arriving um, as uh, the the uh, British ambassador, just, just him commenting you just can't imagine uh, what war does. I mean, we all know it, and yet arriving and just seeing that everything, uh, literally everything, was smashed. 
um, noticing that uh, where the massacres, the worst massacres happened in Bosnia were the same places that they happened in World War Two and maybe earlier, that just some things were just payback for what happened to grandparents. Commenting on um, the vast industry that grows up around uh, a peace building operation, you know, people eating too much, the whole, you know, the, the huge number of internationals who come in and eat too much, get paid too much compared to the local population. Um, there's issues around prostitution that that shows up. So it's just that, just, just what happens. Um, commenting that there's, there was no internet, you know, when he went to Bosnia, uh, he'd never seen an email and uh, now possibly the, inter- the opportunities that come from what can happen with the internet uh, for peace building efforts. Also comments on, you know, like um, how um, if you want to deal, if you want to deal, you have to deal with the worst leaders, um, the kind of the, the polar ends of things and a deal that will suit them, um, which isn't necessarily what's going to suit the moderate center and how that affects the, the dynamic. And, um, and then I think what, you know, what really stood out to me is that is the top down nature of everything um, that happened in Bosnia and how, how peace was arrived at that, you know, there's huge influence of the Dayton Accords, um, uh, getting Bill Clinton, the American president, uh, reelected. Um, and so much of what was, uh, who was in charge were the Americans, uh, Richard Holbrook, who was his special envoy to Bosnia. And, um, you know, um, he needed, Clinton needed an international policy success and Bosnia was it. Um, but, um, you know, the image I get, which is particularly relevant to this podcast because we're exploring these, um, processes that really are highly democratic processes that bring large groups together and build consensus. This was a group of, I'm guessing probably a bunch of white guys sitting around, although it might not have just been white guys, um, coming up with uh, how the spoils should be divvied up, um, facilitated by the Americans and to some extent the British. And um, and also notably, no business leaders at the table, um, but, but basically the ordinary people had no say whatsoever in the process. So finally, one thing he also talks about is Charles had been in South Africa during the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission process, and he talks about that, how that didn't happen in Bosnia, and how, you know, how basically there is that element of how much you need um, reconciliation, deep forgiveness, if you want to, if you want to really create a break from the past, um, which was not something that happened in Bosnia. So anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. I think you will. I think Charles is like super, he's so bright, so crystal clear. Uh, so um, enjoy it and I'll catch you on the other end. So um, Charles, it is uh, really a pleasure really a pleasure to have you here um and i know uh this story about uh bosnia is going to be super interesting to listeners 
And um, first, I want you just, you know, you had a, a long, stellar journey before you got there. Just um, could you say a little bit about your journey before you actually got to 1996 and Bosnia? Right. Well, Susan, thank you for having me. I hope my uh, British accent doesn't make doesn't trigger someone <laughs> listening to your podcast. That's always a risk, I think, in these situations. The... I don't know what that could be, but <laughs> um, basically, I was a I was a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer anyway, and then I did a scholarship at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and ended up in the Foreign Office. This was back in 1979. And the first thing they did almost when you joined in those days was to ask you which hard language you wanted to learn. Yeah, okay. And by then I'd been a student for six years or something after leaving high school. So so I asked for an easy hard language and they gave me Serbo-Croat, which sounds pretty damn hard, but wow, it's not yeah. as hard as Chinese and Arabic and those much bigger, bigger, more complex languages. So I went to Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was then just after Tito had died in 1981. Tito was the great communist dictator who ran Yugoslavia for decades following the end of the Second World War. He died just before I got there. I mean, I don't know how much of the history of the whole Bosnia story we can cope with, not much, yeah. I think, because there's, yeah. there's simply tons of it. But basically, Yugoslavia um, was created out of the Versailles settlement at the end of the First World War. And after the end of the Second World War, it was taken over by the communists. But Tito broke with Stalin in 1948, famously. So Yugoslavia had a communist government, but it wasn't part of the Warsaw Pact. It wasn't part of the Soviet Empire. Um, and it was sort of had a sort of semi-independent role. And Bosnia was one republic within Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was made up of six republics and two provinces. Bosnia was a republic. Kosovo was a province within Serbia, which was another republic. Okay, this may not be a good place to stop you here, but I actually, before you get to the Bosnia story, which you're giving some background on that, which I think is really valuable, um, I wanted to get a little bit more background on you. And and I know you you said you started in the Foreign Office, but then didn't you? Weren't you in South Africa? Weren't you? Um, I, I was just interested in some of the. No, no, sure. Well, I, I joined the Foreign Office in 1979. My first job was in Yugoslavia, which is when I first got involved in Bosnia. Um, I was the British Olympic attache in 1984, living in the Olympic Village wow. during the Sarajevo Winter Olympic Games. Okay. So I knew Bosnia quite well. Yeah. Um, and then I went back to London. I was the Foreign Office speechwriter for a couple of years. That's when I learned that skill. Then I went to Which, South Africa. Which, by the way, for the listeners, Charles is really an expert at uh, at uh, coaching people on giving speeches. Yeah, I've learned a lot well, from him about that. Well, recently I just won another one of those Cicero Awards. So I've now won two speechwriting Oscars. All right. That's great. I went to South Africa and I was there for the end of the apartheid period. You've got to remember what was going on at this point. Um in the mid-80s, Gorbachev had come to power. You'd had that period of stagnation in the uh, in the Soviet Union. Gorbachev had come to power. Reagan and Thatcher and Gorbachev were trying to sort of work together. Apartheid was another Cold War phenomenon. And it's no coincidence that as soon as the Berlin Wall came down, apartheid ended as well. Mm -hmm. So I was there. I wasn't there for the legal 
transition to non-apartheid, but I was there for Nelson Mandela coming out of prison and all that sort of thing. I met Nelson Mandela. You can go on my website and see how I, as a young first secretary, had an hour talking to Nelson Mandela on my own soon after he came out of prison. Anyway, while all that was going on, the Berlin Wall came down. And so I then went back to London. I was the uh, assistant in the department dealing with the Soviet Union. Mm. Within six weeks or so of my going back to London, the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, actually, there was the coup against Gorbachev. The Soviet Union collapsed a few months later. So I dealt with Russia for five years. And while all that was going on, um, the war broke out in Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in Moscow from 93 to 96, they asked me, would I go back to Bosnia to be ambassador um, after the Dayton peace agreement? The Dayton Peace Agreement was pushed through by Dick Holbrook, the American uh, diplomat, and Bill Clinton and Western leaders and Russian leaders, Yeltsin as well. And so I went to, I went back to Bosnia. My first job was in Bosnia when it was Yugoslavia. But then I went back to Bosnia as ambassador after the conflict. So I missed the conflict. I was in Moscow for the conflict. I was following it through the foreign office cables, but I wasn't there on the ground. I hadn't set foot in the place since 1984, so I hadn't been there for for 10 years. So that's basically how I came to Bosnia. And then I I was the ambassador in Bosnia, then I was the ambassador in Serbia after Milosevic fell, and I ended up as ambassador in Poland, and then I left and do other stuff now. (laughs) Other stuff. Okay, so set the scene for us. Uh, you arrive in Bosnia. It's uh, it, you're dealing with a, a post-war reconciliation process, um, and tell us what that looked like for you as a um, British ambassador, and what the, what did it look like? What was the problem you were trying to solve? Yeah, I mean, I'm. I know I'm asking a big question, but you know, maybe you could answer sort of with. Well, with there's, a big... there's different. There's different levels of this. I mean, there's the there's the philosophical level about, you know, what is going to make this thing called Bosnia work. I mean, it's interesting looking at uh, maps of Europe. If you go on YouTube, you can see maps of Europe over the last thousand years, how how the maps of Europe change. It's like countries come and go like amoeba under a microscope. Mm-hmm. And Bosnia is there in about 1300. And then it disappears for 700 years. <laughs> And then it comes back again. So there's certain deep things going on, which go far beyond the purposes of this podcast, but nonetheless are, are, are interesting. I went to Bosnia first when I was in Moscow because they, want, they allowed me to go down and have a look around before I took up my position as ambassador. This was in April 96. So the first thing to understand, I think, for listeners of your podcast is that if you cannot imagine what a mess war makes – if you've never seen it, I'd never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. You know, all the places I remember driving past, you drove in from the airport, everything was smashed up. Mm. And there's these blown out buildings and just, you know, just nothing there. And people are living in them because that's where they live. <laughs> what are they meant to do? And the, the Sarajevo story, it's well documented. It was terrible, um, terrible, protracted drama. So... And so we'd never we'd actually never can had... you summarize just a little bit of what that story was, just because I think probably oh, some okay. people don't well, know what it was, you know. Well, this is and this goes right back to where I, you know, in a way, the philosophical question, namely, what is a country? Yeah. When the Soviet Union broke up, there were within the Soviet Union, 
there was Russia, there was Ukraine, there were 15 republics, right? They were what made up the Soviet Union. That's separate from Poland and Czechoslovakia and those other countries which were in the Warsaw Pact. But within the Soviet Union itself, there were 15 republics and lots of other autonomous areas. The decision was taken that the Soviet Union would break up along the lines of the republics. So Ukraine became a country, Tajikistan became a country, uh, Ukraine became a country, blah, blah, blah. When Yugoslavia started to break up for really very separate reasons, the issue became, should it break up along the lines of the six republics, like the Soviet Union had done, because that was sort of tidy, or should it break up according to some other principle, namely self-determination for Serbs, self-determination for Croats, self-determination for Bosnian Muslims. And it had been decided by the world that the best thing to do was that Yugoslavia should break up along the lines of its internal republics. So the question then became, fine, but are those republics meaningful? Are they countries? Mm -hmm. Do the people within those borderlines want to live in those countries? And for reasons to do with Slobodan Milosevic and Franjo Tuđman, who was the leader in Croatia, um, basically there was a big dispute over whether Bosnia should exist within those borders because there are a lot of Serbs living in Bosnia, there are a lot of Croats living in Bosnia, and this is something which just got everyone really confused. There was, well, there was this ethnic category, right? Listen to this very carefully. There was an ethnic category called Muslims. And these were people who had been under the Ottoman Empire who were genetically, in their DNA terms, as Serb or Croat or Yugoslav as anyone else, but they weren't Orthodox and they weren't Catholic, and they sort of identified with a broad Turkish Muslim tradition. So in the 70s, it had been agreed in the communist period that they could So let me just stop you there. If you looked at uh, Croats, Bosnians, and Serbs, would you uh, notice differences on their, I mean, maybe not, not in terms of dress, I mean, more like their, really their physical form? Not really, but I might a bit as someone who lived there and was just very used to it, but mm -hmm. basically not. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there aren't, it's not as if there's a skin color. It's, it's all about, it was sort of all about religion and identity and community. Mm -hmm. The point I'm making anyway is that, is that that group of people, and there are about two million of them, were allowed to call themselves Muslims. But not all of them were religious Muslims. <laughs> mm -hmm. So all Muslims were Muslims, but not all Muslims were Muslims. That's mm -hmm. a thing to understand about mm -hmm. Bosnia. Mm -hmm. um, and that got everyone confused because mm -hmm. is this a religious thing? Is it a cultural thing? You mm -hmm. know, what are these Muslims? Mm -hmm. Aren't they Muslims? Mm -hmm. And so they then started calling themselves Bosniaks. Mm sort of like Bosnians, but mm -hmm. there's different words in Serbo-Croat for Bosnians. So um, to, to, to separate themselves from the religious identity. So roughly speaking, within Bosnia, the proportion of the population was three Muslims to every two Serbs mm. to every one Croat. So the Muslims were the biggest group, but they weren't the majority. Mm-hmm. And for political reasons, within well, almost they were is three, three to three, right? Three to, I mean, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so th this is this is, I mean, it's really important, but it's sort of in a way very existential in a way, so it's hard to know quite what to make of it. Mm -hmm. 
in you in terms of your podcast but you know what are you trying to do in this place mm-hmm. you know what do you do if something like a third of people in a country don't want to be in it <laughs> now you can say well that's all the fault of milosevic and he was an aggressor and war crimes mm-hmm. and blah 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 but that doesn't really take away from the fact that the Bosnian Serbs were broadly speaking, and some of this may be controversial to some of your listeners, I don't know, this is how I see it. The Bosnian Serbs were relaxed about living in Bosnia, even quite liked it, when it was part of Yugoslavia and they were within a space that had the other Serbs with them. But if Bosnia is going to be independent, why should they suddenly become a minority in a country dominated by the Muslims? Mm-hmm. So that there is a sort of point there about identity, which isn't to be sneezed at, even though Milosevic, you know, exploited it in a disgraceful way. So, so Serbia and Croatia basically did a deal to divide Bosnia between them. And that's really what the so-called civil war was about. Was it a war? Was it a civil war? There's arguments about that, uh, some of which have legal implications. But fundamentally, when Slovenia broke away, Slovenia was one of the six republics, um, the overwhelming population of Slovenia were Slovenes with their own language. So that was an easy win. You could have your own borders, your own culture, your own language, and that was fine. In Croatia, (laughs) there was a large Serbian minority, Mm -hmm. so there was a big fight about that one. Mm -hmm. In Bosnia, there was a three-way split. Mm -hmm. So it's no coincidence that was the place where the violence was worse. And if you look at where the worst massacres were, some of the worst massacres in this 1990s war, you can jump back a couple of generations to what happened in the Second World War and what happened two or three generations mm. before that mm-hmm. in exactly the same places. Wow. Okay. Some of this is payback for yeah. what happened to my grandparents. Wow. Okay. And so this is a place with a lot of deep memories. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, and so I landed there in April 91, and all you can see is Sarajevo smashed to pieces. Not all of it was smashed, but great areas of it were smashed because there'd been a siege and snipers and bombs, and it was just awful. So so to go back to the question, um, the immediate problem was setting up the embassy. We'd never had an embassy there. so we 91 a- was when you got there? I thought it was later than that. It was- no, 96. Uh, 96, okay. The That's war had right. happened, yeah. and so they had the Dayton Peace Agreement right. in 95. Yeah. And so... NATO had poured into Bosnia to enforce the Dayton Peace Agreement. Mm -hmm. Carl Bildt was there and everything was being set up to implement this peace agreement with a view to having democratic elections at the end of uh, October 91. Uh, Sorry, 96. Yeah. Okay. So I was there to help with all that as one of the very few people on the ground as an ambassador who spoke the language and knew anything about it at all. Um, Actually, let me just stop you there. Really, so of all the of the ambassadorial crowd, how many of the major ambassadors spoke the language? I'd say somewhere between me and the Russian ambassador. That would be about it. Wow. Okay. Really interesting. I mean, why would they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you know, you 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 didn't. I mean, I mean, I don't want to be unfair to people, but basically, you know, you would only. You see, no one had had an embassy in Bosnia. It had never been a country. Mm-hmm. So everyone there was sort of improvising mm-hmm. um, one way or the other. Um, and 
so there were the practical difficulties of living there, just physically, you know, having no water. My 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 life as ambassador, never mind the members of the embassy, my life as ambassador, when I first moved there, they found a little house where I could sleep, where the windows weren't broken. I would get up at six o'clock in the morning, go to the embassy, have a shower. The, 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 the woman who did the cleaning and so on would bring me orange juice and coffee and bread and honey. I would then sit in the embassy till one o'clock in the morning. Then I would go home. And where were your wife and kids? Were they? Were oh, they... Well, that was a different story because they were they, they weren't allowed to go there because it was okay. too dangerous. So they, the boys, were then young, so they were allowed to live in Zagreb. There was a so I had to go up there every week, every other weekend to see them. Mm-hmm. So there was all that side of it as well. So mm-hmm. a lot of people were, you know, it's difficult to get into Bosnia. There weren't regular flights. The airport mm-hmm. wasn't open. Mm-hmm. So people were making a lot of family commitments, and you know, all the usual dramas of people running off with their interpreters, all this sort of stuff was going on. So, you know, it's tough. And, you know, when you have these peace, um, post-war peace initiatives, you know, the international community moves in in a massive way. There's great fleets of UN four-wheel drives. Everyone is eating pizza and working too hard and getting paid too much compared to the locals. Mm-hmm. A vast industry grows up of mm-hmm. people who are locals who manage to get in on the International Community Act. I mean, it's very distorting mm-hmm. the international presence. I mean, the whole I mean, the whole issue of prostitutes comes up, you know, when the army are there, you know, mm-hmm. what, what happens with all that? Mm-hmm. You know, are you meant to have a view on people smuggling <laughs> to mm-hmm. keep the 70,000 troops happy? Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets very messy. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very messy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this, what follows is controversial, okay, in terms of how experts on all this would look at what we were all trying to do in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Basically, you have three communities in Bosnia and the proportions roughly three to two to one, okay? What might work as a deal between these communities? One option is to have one country, one political space. Every one person, one vote, checks and balances, human rights, blah, blah, blah. Another option is to have one country, three spaces, with each space sort of for its community. So you'd have a sort of federal, confederal system. The Serbs would live there, the Muslims would live there, the Croats would live there, but they'd be under one international umbrella. Another option well, is to national, have, um, yeah, okay, sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. but sort yeah, of yeah. Um, a bit like England, Scotland, Wales. You yeah, know, England, yeah, England yeah. Scotland for the Scottish, Wales for the Welsh, but one, we're one country. Another option would be to have one country, twelve political spaces. So you would have cantons, for example, like Switzerland, where some would be Serb cantons, some would be Croat cantons, some would be Muslim cantons, some would be more or less mixed. All those make sense. There is only one outcome that theoretically makes no sense at all. That was the one agreed at Dayton, (laughs) which is that you have one country, two spaces. One space is for the Serbs. The other space is for the three Muslims and the one Croats. Uh, Okay, let me slow you down there because – who are the decisions? Because this is, you know, a lot of the focus here is on process and how these decisions come to be. Yeah. Um, who were the decision makers? How were the uh, lay people involved in this, if they were at all? Well, uh, okay. or, yeah, how did that come to be? Well, 
it's hard to imagine now. I mean, as you said, some of your listeners may never have been born when all this was going on. But the whole Bosnia thing, when the Cold War ended, there was a huge attempt. You know, it was the end of history. There was stuff going on. The Russians and the Americans and the Brits, we were really trying hard to cooperate and to make peace. And we, you know, had new millennium development goals. There was a real sense of optimism about the world. Um, and then this bloody Bosnia thing happened. And everyone, you know, it was such a mess. And leaders were spending days and days and days poring over maps of the Balkans, trying to figure out where the next massacre was going to come. Charles, was it the biggest hotspot on the planet at that point in time? Was, yeah, for sure, because yeah. absolutely, was it pretty much, I can't think of any others, mm-hmm. or anything like this. Mm-hmm. And because it, because, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a success with mm-hmm. a capital S, mm-hmm. the end of apartheid was a success, even though 40,000 people died there, which no one talks about. But there was all this success. And here in Europe, I mean, 45 45 minutes away from Rome by plane was this ridiculous war. And it was on TV and people were being shot and you Women know, were being raped in, in massive well, numbers. Just, it was just horrible. Just Concentration horrible. camps. I mean, mm. what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. And it led to the biggest fight across the Atlantic since the Second World War between London and Washington over how this should be handled. Mm-hmm. It was got really, really bad atmosphere between people who'd been friends and colleagues, you know, because – because the Americans said, look, we've got to sort this out. And we said, that's absolutely fine. We Brits. But then are you prepared to put troops on the ground like we have to sort it out? They said, no, no, no. We just want to bomb everyone from the air. And we said, that's fine. In that case, we'll leave because we don't want to be bombed mm-hmm. or be there when we get caught between the different factions shooting at us because they're being bombed. The Americans said, no, no, no you stay there and we'll bomb. So hang on, we said, uh uh-uh, uh, this isn't going to work. So there was mm-hmm. a big fight about the policy of all this. And should you arm the Muslims, for example? And how should the Muslims defend themselves? I mean, what you should actually do um, was complicated. Mm. It wasn't obvious what the answer was. Because mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union, they'd sort of broken up nicely, give or take Nagorno Karabakh or one or two other places. But, but this wasn't nice. And it wasn't clear what the answer should be. So to answer your question, um, when the Serbs and Muslims and Croats all started fighting each other in different parts of Bosnia, there were lots of local conflicts going on. The Germans and the Americans were driven crazy by the fact that the Muslims and Croats wouldn't join forces against the Serbs because the Serbs were the problem, as they saw it. So they then lent on the Muslims and Croats to set up this new political um um, unity, this new political joint front against the Serbs. And they proclaimed a thing called the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Okay, this is a very complex thing. But it, a huge amount flowed th- from it right to this day. This is why it's important, because I think one of the things I want to leave with your people is where you start makes a huge difference to where you end up. If you and make a even, mistake at the beginning, it's very hard to correct it 10 years later. And Charles, when you say where you start, you're also talking about some of the historical stuff. Where do you where do you even point the time where the beginning starts? Well, I think I think is I mean. For me, it started, you know, in January 1981 when I sort of landed in Yugoslavia. I mean, you you can pick your moment, but I think um, really when it got out of control was when we um, decided to insist, we the world, 
and there were good reasons for it. It wasn't a, it wasn't obviously mad decision, mad or bad, but it nonetheless didn't turn out well. To recognize or to insist that Yugoslavia break up along its internal borders, mm. without having a clear plan as to what would happen if that went wrong. <laughs> And so fundamentally, when the war started in Bosnia, no one knew what to do. And Bosnia is basically a lot of mountains. Right. It's a very difficult space. You can't easily send – this is what happened in the Second World War. Hitler went into Bosnia, had a terrible time there because everyone just retreats into the mountains and has ambushes. Mm-hmm. You can't – there aren't great roads there. There aren't highways. A little reminderful of Afghanistan. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, but in a way, much more sort of – dense and intricate mm-hmm. and covered in trees it's mm-hmm. really a very difficult place to mm-hmm. to uh, to operate in militarily unless you unless you are locals anyway so um so the point was that the serbs and croats set up a sort of form of political unhappy marriage against the serbs and that was the basis of the dayton sorry deal. the bosnians and the croats the, Ser- the Bosnian the- Muslims. What did yeah. I say? You said the, the Serbs. Bosnian- yeah. yeah, the- yeah no, sorry. The Bosnian Muslims and the Croats right. were forced by the Americans and Germans to set up this deal against the Serbs. And that was the basis of the Dayton Peace Agreement. Mm-hmm. So the Dayton Peace Agreement in 95 created the Bosnian constitution for the new country, full of democratic principles. But it was based upon there being they couldn't work out what to call them. They couldn't work out whether it was a confederation or a federation. They didn't know what to call it. So they called Bosnia-Herzegovina has two entities. One is the the federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The other is Republic of Serbska, the sort of Serb bit. And within that, huge efforts were made. And this is an important part of what I actually did there to get people back to their own homes. Because a lot of people had been displaced within the country, refugees and so on. So serious efforts were made to help people move back to their original homes. And that meant, hang on, that person has to go back to their home. So that one has to go there. And people were being moved around in the next few years were being moved around the thing like like, uh, chess pieces. It was just genuinely complicated. You had people in the embassy whose flats were occupied by people who were displaced. They'd run away during the war. Someone else had come Mm. in. So there was a lot of attention given to that. And this was, after all, Europe, you know, and there were was sort of the law, even though it was communist Europe. There was sort of process there. And so there were things you could work with in terms of all that. But what I'm trying to say is that the philosophical basis of Dayton did not make much sense, I think. And I've written massively about this on my website, if anyone cares. But the idea that you have a deal which is asymmetric in the way that Dayton was – it gave the Serbs too much and it gave the Bosnians and Croats too little mm. is basically what happened. Mm-hmm. And the point is once you've set it up – And Serbs, who and who decided that? It sounds well, like – Who decided it, that? Well, who decided that was was Holbrook and Clinton. Yeah, yeah. And I was at the meeting in Moscow when um, – And Holbrook and Clinton, Clinton being uh, Bill Clinton, the president of the United States, Holbrook yeah. was this the special envoy. Very, right? very, very powerful big man. And this From is the United big, States. From, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he was the chief negotiator, mm-hmm. and it was decided to have a peace deal in Bosnia because the, after there was Srebrenica, which was a terrible massacre, and that then led to um, an, a, an international agreement on how to bomb the Bosnian Serbs. And basically, the there was an intense bombing process, and that led to a ceasefire eventually in mm-hmm. 1995, and that's how you got Dayton. So they decided to have 
the peace agreement at the Dayton Air Force Base. Because that was the only way they reckoned if you had it in New York or Geneva, these wretched Balkan leaders would just be, you know, distracted. We're going to the take Dayton Air Force Base in Ohio in the United States. Yeah. yeah. OK. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I hate I hate to say it's the place with the worst food in the world. But, it is, <laughs> you know, I, I went there for the 10th anniversary of the Dayton peace deal. And it, it was just awful. Anyway, so they decided to take them all there. So your question where were the ordinary people in all this? The ordinary people had no say whatsoever at that process. And this was another part of the problem. You know, who sits around the peace table? Mm -hmm. Who sat around the peace table was the, the international key leaders, effectively Yeltsin, British Prime Minister, Germans, French, Russians, blah, blah, blah. And the three, the leader of Serbia, the leader of Croatia, not the leader of the Bosnian Serbs, mm -hmm. not the leader of the Bosnian Croats, but the president of Serbia, Milosevic, the president of Croatia, Tujman, and the president of the Muslim bit of Bosnia. Was there, were there any women there? Well, the head British negotiator was a woman, but mm -hmm. there weren't any women from the locals. Of course mm -hmm. not, because there weren't any. The one senior woman politician ended up in the Hague on war crimes, Biljana Plavšić from mm -hmm. the Bosnian Serbs. But part of the point of all this, and this is, again, I've written about this, is that, the, is that if you want a deal in some of these situations, you have to have a deal between the worst people who started the mess in the first place, mm. unless you are prepared to force them off the map of the political map. But if the worst people who started the whole mess do the deal, it's going to be a deal that suits them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not going to be a deal that suits normal people. And mm -hmm. so there's a real, real drama in all this peace building stuff, which is how you deal with what I call bad leaders. Bad leaders are people who uh, are prepared to wreck their own countries, their own communities for reasons of pride, greed, power, whatever. But if you if you don't bring them in, they're powerful enough to make sure nothing works. But if you do bring them in, nothing works, <laughs> or at least it only works on their terms. So the moderate center, whatever happens, gets screwed. Mm. Now, the answer to that is fine. We're doing the best we can. And don't forget, by the way, that the whole reason Dayton happened the way it did was to help Clinton get reelected. Hmm. Remember that, that in all this. Say a little a, bit about, more about that. Well, because Clinton, if I remember correctly, Clinton's election was in uh, when was when was the when do you, when do you have elections in America every four, every four years? And uh, hmm, I don't know at that point when the election cycle was. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but you have the election in even number years, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I'm just trying to remember the sequence of it. But anyway, um, the point is that the American politics of this and how Bill Clinton needed a domestic success and why in those days, it's hard to remember it now, but Americans wouldn't put troops on the ground in case mm. one got shot. Mm. You know, there was a lot of all that going on in the way the whole thing was done. So Holbrook pushed all this through to get a big international policy success for Clinton. And that mm. was what he was paid to do. And that's what he got. And it was a serious effort. Mm. The trouble with it is that there were, for reasons going back into the origins of the, the conflict, 
those deeper problems weren't really addressed. Mm-hmm. So the basic deal was hit at Dayton was was this. Here is the uh, Bosnian constitution. Here is the status of forces agreement allowing NATO to come into Bosnia. Here is the plan for the reconstruction of Bosnia with the World Bank and the IMF. It was a series of documents, quite a very complex thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the key of it, the, the heart of it, effectively was the Bosnian constitution. And there were transitional arrangements, so there would be elections in Bosnia in, uh, I'm trying to think of the date now, October 96. But this was all sort of determined by the, the, the negotiators, saying, and particularly maybe the Americans saying, this would be a good way to do this, or this would be a good way to do this, versus... Well, well you see, this is what I mean by, this is, you see, I think the... It's just really, unless you've done this work in the field, if you're interested in, as a student, say, someone listening to your podcast, you're interested in peace building. I remember when I'd had a year at Harvard after Bosnia, I went to Harvard in uh, 98, 99. And there was a guy called Abe Chase, who I think has died now, but he and his wife ran this wonderful course on international peacekeeping. And I sat in on this course. And what was just amazing about this course was how they drilled down into the details Mm -hmm. and how each soldier carries in his pocket a card of the rules of engagement. Because you're an American soldier or or an Iraqi soldier or a Bangladeshi soldier in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. You don't speak the language. Mm -hmm. You know nothing about it at all. Mm -hmm. You're there to keep the peace. Mm -hmm. A mob come towards you shouting and screaming, can you shoot them or not? Right. This is a big deal. And so the troops have a piece of paper in their pocket saying, under these circumstances, you can kill people. And it actually actually can be put on a small enough piece of paper? Has to be. Yeah. Has to be put on a small piece of paper Mm -hmm. because ordinary guys who don't know anything about anything but are very good at shooting people have to know when they get their guns out and shoot people. And so this this is sort of what's really – sort of important in it all and these tiny details like for example i mean it's not a tiny detail it's a much bigger detail the voting system how do you set up a voting system for bosnia there are ways you can where do you you know do you have a single transferable vote do you have a majority vote do you have voting areas you know who demarcates the you know the border lines for voting areas do you set up the system so it makes a clear winner or do you set up the system so it encourages reconciliation? So in the British, funny British system, you have 600 and something so-called constituencies. You count the votes. The one who gets the most votes, even if it's not a majority, is the member of parliament for that constituency. And that, of course, means that you might win the vote with 30 percent of the vote. Because everyone, you get 32, the next person gets 31, the next person gets 30. You're the MP, even though 60% of people have voted against you. That's just the way we do it. One thing I thought they could have done in Bosnia was to say, OK, we'll have voting units, but each voting unit will have three MPs. The first three passed the post, and that would guarantee you got a bigger spread of representation within the voting unit. But I can tell you no real thought was given by people to how the voting system in Bosnia might really, really work if you're really clever to encourage reconciliation. So that's a you know, so now if you were God and you're looking back on the whole thing and you wanted to not be an autocrat, but you wanted to to really apply democratic principles and really engage 
participants in the decisions that were going to affect them. Um, what do you, you know, uh, with, with 2020 hindsight, which is, of course, you know, uh, whatever it is, um, what do you think you would do? Well, I think it depends on the situation. I think the, the you know, for example, one of the things you might do would be to say, OK, let's insist that at least a quarter of people on any party slate are female, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might have some sort of at least basics. Even a small quota is maybe better than nothing in some of these societies. But you would give really serious thought to what it is you're trying to do through the voting system because you're because the in a situation like Bosnia, where people are going to vote on an ethnic ticket, everyone is voting for ethnic fire insurance. No, very few Serbs are going to vote for a Muslim. Very few Muslims are going to vote for a Serb. Mm -hmm. Fine. So therefore, how do you then organize things to get at least some small, maybe dynamic of sort of mutual confidence building trust into those those outcomes and indeed into the process. Um, I think you'd have to, um, how that would work in Bosnia might be very different from Afghanistan, say, or whatever. It just depends on on what it is you're trying to do. But when you say, you know, you're trying to bring in democratic principles, there's just lots of different ways of running a democracy. You know, some are much more slow than others. Some give very clear cut outcomes. (laughs) You know, look at America, you know, Electoral college gives you one result. The popular vote gives you another. Mm. They're both democratic, Mm -hmm. but there are rules, you know, and so so there are ways you could play with that. Um, The other thing to remember now, which, again, would maybe amaze some of your listeners, is that there wasn't the Internet. Yeah. I had never seen an email when I went to Bosnia. (laughs) Yeah, that's super interesting to think about. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. if you were doing it now, you have wonderful options for transparency, bringing in uh, ways to reduce corruption, bringing in electronic voting, bringing in electronic money. But you then know, you'd have, also have the possibility of hacking and, and false sure, you know, fake but news. Be, and, but, but, but that's sort of that's maybe better than what you ended up with here, at least. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is if you're if you're God looking at all this, you could be very sophisticated about the way you also very simple in key respects about the way you built the peace process. Um, you would have more tools than you have now. Um, but 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 I just want to mention this other thing because this is again, you know, the difficulty of being God. <laughs> How do I explain this? In Yugoslavia, when it was one country, right, there were People on their ID cards would have their so-called ethnicity. It would say, I am Slobodan Milosevic, I am Serb, I am Franjo Tudjman, I am Croat. Okay, blah, blah, blah. And a sort of, in, under Tito, a sort of very elaborate form of positive discrimination emerged so that there had to be a fair balance of the different communities in key jobs. So if you're running the Federal Ministry of Health, for example, there have to be some Slovenes, some Croats, some Serbs, some Muslims, some this, some that. It was called the ethnic key, ethnicky kluch. And so, so when they set up Bosnia, because they frankly didn't know much about it. Nothing. If I was if I was God, I would make sure that sitting around the table at Dayton were people who spoke the language and had a sense of the 
the, the sort of driving sort of existential motives of the of the locals because mm-hmm. there wasn't anyone there like that at day. It's amazing, really. But it's seniority. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was going on mm-hmm. in that on that sort of level. So they brought into because the late the, the locals said, well, "Hang on, we want all this ethnic key stuff. We've got to have that because we're used to that." And people said, "Well, okay, you want that, you have it." They seem, they seem to agree on that, but it was a bad idea. Why? Because in the Bosnian constitution, and listen to this carefully, it's complicated. This is all complicated. This whole situation is hugely complicated. <laughs> I'm trying to make it as simple you as are. I can. You know you're doing a good job. But in the Bosnian constitution, they said, right, the president will be a job share. There will be a three-person presidency. Two people, a Croat and a Bosniak, elected from the territory of the federation. That's the one entity. Mm-hmm. The other person will be a Serb elected from the territory of Republika Srpska. Mm-hmm. So you have one Croat, one Muslim, one Serb doing a job share for the presidency. Fine. But listen to what it says. It says a Muslim and a Croat elected from the territory of the Federation. That means if you're a Serb living in the Federation, you can't run for president. And if you're a Croat living in Republika Srpska, you can't run for president. So the Bosnian constitution brought in at Dayton included in the constitution the European Declaration of Human Rights, which ruled out discrimination on ethnic grounds. And it included ethnic discrimination. So as I wrote at my paper at Harvard on all this, anyone interested can write me and I'll send it to them. It's not published. The Bosnian constitution was unique in being unconstitutional. (laughs) And and this then eventually led to a lawsuit Mm -hmm. and they have not been able to solve this. Mm -hmm. How do you have a three-person presidency that guarantees ethnic representation of a Serb, a Croat, a Muslim in this three-way country? but does not discriminate against anyone running for president where they live. And what about Jews living there? What about someone who isn't a Serb or Croat or a Muslim, who's a, someone who's part Serb, part Croat, part Muslim and calls himself a Bosnian? That person, the most Bosnian person of all, can't run for president. <laughs> so, Charles, um, just uh, paying attention to the time, if you fast yeah. forwarded to now and looked yeah. back on this whole situation, uh, what were, uh, did anything work? Or, or, or not? Well, it's worked in the sense that there hasn't been war. Did I mean, you say it's, it's worked in the... Okay. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, there mm-hmm. hasn't been war. There has been a lot of rebuilding. You know, there's mm-hmm. go to Sarajevo airport now. It looks like a European sort of cappuccino parlor. <laughs> it's sort of smart. You know, we've paid for all this. Roads have been built. Lots and lots of people went back to their original houses. Gazillions of mines have been cleared. So there's a sort of, you know, normalcy has been restored. But... They haven't been able to work out how to run the place. So the corruption, the waste, the taxation is far too high. There's far, 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 far too much government per per population. Mm-hmm. The business environment is terrible. The investment is terrible. Um, you know, on it, most indicators, given the amount of money we've put, it's only four million people there, right? This is only 
you know, it's a small area. And, and when you say we, you're talking about you know, the Brits and you. The, the, the... People listening to this podcast, our taxes have been poured into well, Bosnia. Well, the people are all over the world listening to this podcast, actually. But you're talking yeah. about the United States and the UK, I think. Well, UK and everyone around the world. I mean, mm-hmm. their taxpayers' money have gone into it. You know, mm-hmm. we've really invested a lot mm-hmm. in Bosnia. The amounts of sums of money per capita, if you look at the whole cost of, of the... Um, you know, the, the troop presence, the investment, the war crimes tribunals. I mean, the whole, the sums of money involved in this, billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. The return on that investment, I would argue, has been, it's, it hasn't been nil, but it hasn't been good enough. Hmm. Because the politics of it all, because of the problems at Dayton, um, you know, have, have led to a sort of stalemate and they can't agree on the most you know, basic things on how to run the country. Mm. Um, you know, how everything is politicized. Mm-hmm. I mean, the American ambassador talking about Americans, it drove him mad that McDonald's couldn't open in Sarajevo. McDonald's wanted to go to Sarajevo to open. Mm. I think it took two or three years or something, maybe not as long as that, but years to get the locals to agree a permit to allow McDonald's to be open because they didn't want competition. Mm-hmm. Now, this is ridiculous. You've got to encourage foreign investment. What else have you got? There's nothing there. It's a mountainous place with no roads, no motorways. I mean, how you've got to get money coming in. And, you know, if you were God, you would really build into these peace agreements a lot more business people. Mm-hmm. All the peacemakers are there, the sort of the Susans and the Charleses and the sort of NGOs and the all those people. But where are the business people? Mm-hmm. Where are the investors? They were where not the there. Mm-hmm. No, of course not. They're not there. Mm-hmm. You go to so many Bosnia conferences. I mean, I must have been to dozens of them. Almost no business people there because it's it's the sort of, you know, it, it's the sort of um, state and it's so-called civil society talking mm-hmm. about itself. It's not really looked at holistically, just bringing the whole system into the room, which is something we talk about on this podcast. I think and you've really but you've really got to have if you, you know, you Bosnia, you see, was built up during Tito's time. It got a lot of communist investment from the rest of Yugoslavia for all sorts of reasons, because it was very poor at the end of the Second World War, but also because they wanted to build a lot of arms factories there. And it was the place if the Americans and Russians invaded Tito's Yugoslavia, where they would fall back to. So there was a lot of rather heavy industrial investment in Bosnia. And the Bosnians thought this was the natural state of affairs, you see. They wanted to go back to to what it was like before the war on some sort of level. Mm-hmm. So there's a famous um, Holiday Inn in Sarajevo, the, that yellow building, which was a big symbol of the war. And it was just amazing. I was there during the Winter Olympic Games. It was built for the Olympic Games. It was yellow and purple. It was just communist kitsch of the most amazing sort of awful sort. And when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it exactly as it was before the war, right down to the terrible checkout system. They didn't say, we've had a war, let's jump to a completely new level of modernization. They said, we've had a war, we want it to be just like it was before, which was, which was, which was doomed. So, Charles- It seemed to be worse because, because there wasn't war, but, you, but mm. you can't run a society on that basis. Let me ask you uh, again, just um, because we're, we're fighting time a little bit. Um, on a personal level, when you think about the whole experience, um, what, do you, what do you personally feel the most proud of and what do you personally feel the most oh, like you wish it could have been different or you wish you could have done something different? 
Well, I mean, I, I did pretty well in building up that embassy. I did very well in reporting back to London what was happening because I was the only person really who understood it. I think on, I mean, it sounds a bit vain, but because I understood the it's language, okay. mm-hmm. I, I tune into it quite well. And my cables were sent to NATO and Wes Clark and Holbrook and all mm-hmm. these people were reading my British diplomatic dispatches because mm-hmm. they were, you know, they were good. And, and we did things like, um, um, I don't know, we took, I took Bosnia seriously, which looking back on it may have been a mistake. But I said, OK, let's make this happen. How do we break down barriers? So, so I said, OK, there are three official languages in Bosnia, Serbian, Bosnian and Croatian. Let's put up the name of the embassy in the three languages on the wall. When we did that, there were only two buildings of any foreign description in Bosnia which did that, <laughs> us and the Russian embassy. Mm-hmm. And we said to President Izetbegovic, you want to be president of all Bosnians, put that up on the wall. It seems said, like I'm such an having... obvious thing to do, yeah, you know. But it was very opposed because you're having Cyrillic. Cyrillic mm-hmm. is is the Serbian language of the oppressor. How mm-hmm. can you have that on the wall? Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't have that, how do you expect Serbs to come back to Sarajevo and live normally? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where do you how do you cut out of this um, thing? So, so, but this worked. The other way as well. So when we had a visitor coming to, you know, a lot of senior visitors came out from London. We took them up to Parley, which is where the Bosnian Serb leadership was. We insisted on people from the Bosnian foreign ministry and Bosnian cars driving them up there (laughs) into Serbian territory. Mm Symbolically, mm-hmm. we're here on a visit to Bosnia. So if you're looking for a funny moment when I was sort of proud of myself, I was interviewed on Serbian Republika Srpska television. And they said, how, how does the, how do, what, what is the British foreign policy towards Republika Srpska? I said, well, we don't have any foreign policy towards Republika Srpska. We have a foreign policy towards Bosnia and you are part of Bosnia. And people were cheering in Sarajevo and the Serbs were booing and watching it on Serbian <laughs> TV. You know, so so we did we did lots of little things. I personally did a lot of little things to get people talking across these the legal and ethnic divides. Um, Carl Bildt, who was then the uh, international high representative, he came up with one very clever thing, which is to make the number plates ethnically neutral hmm. because previously you mean you on cars to, you took me on a car yeah, no plates, mm-hmm. yeah, car license plates mm-hmm. um if you go to serbia now you can tell when you're going around when you follow the system exactly where a car comes from so if it comes from niche it'll say ni if it mm-hmm. comes from belgrade it'll say be blah 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 and that was how it was in sarajevo so mm-hmm. if you were a serb driving into a croat area they could throw stones at your cars because they could tell you were probably a serb mm-hmm. so we came up with ethnically neutral number plates so that everyone could drive around mm-hmm. with a lot less hassle mm-hmm. so little tricks like that actually i mean are very very clever and important mm-hmm. um the if anyone's interested on my website there's a speech i gave at stockholm uh, after this is years later about looking back on all this stuff i just got up and ranted and someone it was at a conference on bosnia and someone made a transcript and there it is so but one of the things i think you have to do in these peace processes is follow the money 
I mean, one thing you ha- one thing you have to do is take out some of the bad apples because you can't build. Wait, are those different ideas? Yeah, they are different yeah. ideas. Okay. I'll do the bad apple idea first. Okay. You know, if you've got war criminal suspects running around, they have to be driven off the table. And mm-hmm. we made a big mistake in not arresting Karadzic and Mladic right at the start when we had the maximum troop presence there just to say, this is over. Mm-hmm. Because imagine if I'm – imagine you are a, you know, a local in a peacekeeping situation. The international community come in and they're like people carrying bags of seeds, throwing the seeds out as they do in the Bible to plant the seeds on the grass, right? Here's some money. Here's some democracy. Here's some this. Here's some that. Blah, 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 blah. And you're watching the seed guy. And the seed guy is pretty impressive. These seeds are good. Good stuff. You know, a lot of seeds. But behind the seed person is someone putting weed killer on the seeds. (laughs) (laughs) And you're thinking, okay, why does that (laughs) seed guy not know that that guy's there? Or does he know that he's there and the whole thing's a trick? Mm. So the war criminal element, the extremist element, Mm -hmm. if you don't deal with it, moderates are going to think this is a trick. We'll wait and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You you know, you have to have a vision for empowering moderates. And so um, one personal thing I did, and maybe this is the thing which had the most consequences, was to send a thing to London saying we have to arrest these war criminals. Mm -hmm. So the Clinton election was in 96 the Dayton peace agreement beforehand, he wanted the peace, um, he wanted the Bosnian elections to be a success in 96. But that meant that he wouldn't send in American troops to arrest the war criminals in case they got shot. And after the Clinton election, that was fine. I send a thing to London saying we have to get rid of these war criminals because mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. NATO driving around, waving at Karadzic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's standing by the side of the road and they're waving at him. Mm-hmm. And you know, this makes us look the whole effort look ridiculous. And so mm-hmm. London said, you're right, this does make the whole thing look ridiculous. And in 97, they started arresting the war criminals, mm-hmm. but they went in for the so-called junior war criminals, not the big ones. Uh-huh. Why was that? And you've got to take the big ones out quickly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's tough, but, mm-hmm. you know, and it's dangerous and mm-hmm. your, your troops are maybe at risk, but mm-hmm. that's something you have to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's one thing you have to do. The other thing is follow the money. And in my speech in... Um, little intervention at least in Stockholm, I said, look at Bosnia. Bosnia was a poor country. Most people in Bosnia were living on, by World Bank calculations, you know, two or three dollars a day Mm. after the war. The place had been smashed. Mm -hmm. I mean, just objectively poor. Not that, I mean, people had sort of houses and roofs and it wasn't like, you know, the worst poverty in Africa, but it was, you know, people were poor. They had no money. There were no jobs. Um, And I said, look, but even in Bosnia, if there are four million people, each with $3 a day or $5 a day, times by 365 days, that is still $9 billion in cash sloshing around this little economy. Hmm. Who controls that? The people who insist on the electricity being paid, the people who insist on the phone bills being paid, the people who insist on taxes being paid. You know, the the people who run the cigarette business. (laughs) And if you can smuggle a load of cigarettes into Bosnia, a truckload of cigarettes, right, is worth about half a million dollars. (laughs) One truckload of cigarettes won't buy you a judge in Bosnia. It will buy you the legal system if the judge is paid $200 a month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at the money. And that's why I think using transparency in the Internet Mm -hmm. now, if you were doing it, Mm -hmm. I mean, Obviously, some of these countries haven't got that, but building that in as a factor 
to really fast track cell phone technology so that procurement contracts and all this sort of stuff can be put up on the internet and you use transparency to empower people is, is a huge thing you could do now compared to what you could do then. But it mm-hmm. needs to be done in a very smart way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, and, it's, and it's difficult because who, who controls the phone contracts? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and in, and in these things, you know, you're not really you're not really the colonial government. If you said, listen, Bosnia, we will run Crawford will be prime minister of Bosnia for 20 years. I would have done quite a good job as prime minister of Bosnia. <laughs> and then after that, we'll have free elections. I will be a dictator for 20 years. I will straighten this place out. And after that, you will have free elections, maybe five years. But you're not a dictator. You're asking them to agree things. So one of the things, again, going back to Dayton, they did in, I think it was in Cambodia. They had an international sort of high representative person after the war, but they came up with a very clever idea there, which wasn't applied in Bosnia, which is the international position can be overruled if the locals agree. Mm-hmm. So you give them an incentive to agree. Yeah. Whereas what we did was give them an incentive to disagree. Yeah. And guess what? They disagreed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's really why it's sort of faltered now and why even now – you know, no one really thinks this mm-hmm. is going to last forever because it's not stable and mm-hmm. you, you probably don't follow it. But, you know, there's a lot of unhappiness in Macedonia, one of the other republics, mm-hmm. Kosovo. You know, this, there's a sense of unfinished business. So, Charles, we need to wind up and I think it would be really because this is such a hugely complex situation um, and you've uh, been so crystal clear about stuff that's hugely muddy and complex. If you... Uh, could uh, wind it up with um, maybe maybe a, cu- a couple of the thing that the greatest learnings that stand out to you about what the internet what the world could learn about building peace from this situation. Uh, would you be able to do that? Well, one of the I was just thinking while you were asking. One of the issues that comes up is we never learn from these conflicts. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what lessons are learned from Bosnia. You can be damn sure they will not apply in Afghanistan or Congo <laughs> because it's a different set of people and no one's got time to read all that old stuff. Mm-hmm. You know that's just how it is. So we're very, very appallingly bad at learning lessons in these things. And as far as I can see, there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the internet helps a bit, but I don't know. Um, Super interesting observation. I think you have to – I mean I think you have to think a little bit about reconciliation. And, and, and by that I mean a break with the past. Is there is, – is this peace building clearly a break with the past or not? Because – or is it more of the same wearing different sort of trousers? Um and, but if you want to break with the past, you have to break with the past and you have to maybe get people motivated to do things very differently. But maybe that means taking out generations of leaders and saying, thank you very much. It doesn't matter how distinguished you are. Go away. But how do you force them out? Mm-hmm. You have an election in Bosnia. The same people get elected. I mean, you know, where's democracy and all this? But we want to vote for Mr. So-and-so. He's our great leader. Terribly sorry you can't because it's not good for you. I mean, you get tangled up in your own paternalism. Mm-hmm. So, But I think the idea of a break with the past through a reconciliation commission is, is an important idea. You see, you have – I think this is maybe my main big-term thought. Um, 
is it's this idea of reconciling peace and justice. You know, peace means needs reconciliation, you know, deep peace, as it were, where you're saying, well, all right, let's really put that behind us and let's let's genuinely build something that may last for you know, 200 years here, given that nothing lasts. But let's let's really make something that has a, a sort of self-sustaining success. Um, and that's the peace side of it. But can you have the peace without the justice? Namely, but hang on a minute, you, you, you know, they killed my, massacred my family. Are you expecting me to go to that guy's shop now and buy his peaches as though nothing happened? Are you serious? So can you have peace without justice? But how do you deliver the justice without the peace? And there's lots of literature on this, and it's just really, really, really hard. People talk about the South Africa, an example. I was in South Africa, so I know a little bit about it. But the point about South Africa is that one side won. You know, the blacks won, and I wouldn't say the whites lost, but the whites sort of surrendered power voluntarily. But fundamentally, there was a, a complete psychological break with the past. The minority, so-called whites, have run this country. Now the majority, so-called blacks, are going to run it. <laughs> that is a, as big a psychological change as you can imagine. That's why it was so dramatic. Mm. Um, and in that context, it's possible to be magnanimous if you are the majority. Okay, we've won. It's now clear these people have sort of lost. Let's be magnanimous and let's instead of having lots of war crimes trials for apartheid, let's have a peace and reconciliation commission. Now, there's something rather African about that. There's this word Ubuntu and so on. But but how would that have worked in Bosnia? You know, how would you have had a peace and reconciliation commission in Bosnia when it wasn't quite clear who won? I mean, I think the answer is you could have done it. But no one thought about it at Dayton. I think really having that in there to let people get, if only just to let people get things off their chest. Mm -hmm. And we, we instead, we set up the Hague Tribunal for Bosnia and former Yugoslavia rather where, you know, you've spent probably now several billion dollars bringing 50 people to trial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> could, you say, uh, uh, could you say anything uh, shortly about if there was some kind of truth and reconciliation process in the Bosnian situation, what that could have looked like? Well, I mean, just say there was another war in Bosnia now, and you decide, okay, that bloody Crawford, he's a bit old now, but let's bring him back to lead the Peace and Reconciliation Commission. You would have someone who could, who would know enough about the the, the, the Serbs and the, the, the Yugoslavs, have an expression, duh situatia. Duch is a word for ghost and spirit, the spirit of the situation. Mm -hmm. What's the spirit of the situation? You know, we all know. I mean, I mean, let me just tell you one story, right? My driver in Sarajevo was a Bosnian Muslim. Um, but And he was astonishing driver. He could go around a, a bend in thick fog in the middle of the night at, at a very high speed <laughs> in the mountain and overtake <laughs> on the corner and I didn't die. Mm -hmm. He drove that car as if he it was if he and the car were one thing. Well, I've never seen anything like it. He was mm -hmm. an amazing driver. Mm -hmm. He lived during the war on the front line. The front line in Sarajevo went right down into the city in different points. So his block of flats was between the Serbs besieging the city and the people in Sarajevo being besieged. And his son was killed when he went out to buy chocolate or something. 
And he told me this story in his block of flats. The war didn't go on all the time. There were lulls and ceasefires and explosions and sniper fire. But people were living there with all this going on. In his block of flats, there was a Serb. And they would sit and have whatever passed for coffee in those days complaining about the war. One day, the Serb couldn't stand it anymore, living in on the wrong side of the border. So he went over to the Serbian side and he got a rocket grenade launcher from somewhere and blew out this guy's balcony on his block of flats. And then he phoned up to say sorry. Mm. Now, you know, those stories, and and, and none Mm. of them knew why they did it. Mm -hmm. And there were sort of gangsters and Arkan and Milosevic and politics and, Mm. you know, Clinton and Yeltsin and Holbrook and me and all this stuff. But on a human level, it was just really messed up. Mm-hmm. And so somehow I think you wanted – and this guy wasn't angry. I mean he wasn't – he was just sort of saying, how the hell – none of us knew why we were doing this. Or it was so deeply repressed. I, I can't imagine. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, what – what, you know, the, the, you know, what – but it needs – so there's a sort of – there's a therapy element in all mm-hmm. this peace building yeah. stuff, which sounds a bit soppy, but I mean, I as a sort of non-soppy person, I think, would sort of think that actually there's a really hard edge to getting some of that in there. Mm-hmm. The, the difficulty is is linking it to legal process, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what are the consequences? If someone comes along and commits to some sort of war crime, do they automatically get an amnesty or just mm-hmm. a normal crime? Mm-hmm. Do they get an amnesty or not? In mm-hmm. re- You know, is it better to build you know, peace um, through forgiveness? Mm-hmm. Or is it better to build peace through justice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're, they, they're not always the same. Mm-hmm. And and you maybe you need a bit of both, but you, you know, how that works and what it, in theory, how it works on a piece of paper at Dayton, how it works in practice, very, very subtle. But my instinct is you should have some of that because if you don't have some of that, it just it just leads to elites of different shapes and sizes sort of creating a new stitch up and you don't get the, you're not really creating the psychological break with the past, which I think is perhaps the most important thing. People, especially in these, um, I don't know, there's, there's a famous, you've probably never heard of him, but he won the Nobel prize a long time ago, a guy called Ivo Andrich. Mm-hmm. And he's a, a sort of Yugoslav, but you know, the Serbs, Croats, Bosniaks all will say he's one of theirs. He's, you know, what was he? Mm-hmm. It's contested like everything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to remember in Bosnia, everything was contested. Everything, you know, it, we talked about this when I met you, but, you know, like in America, if I said to you, give me talk for the next hour about symbols of America, you could just talk for an hour about the Grand Canyon, Mickey Mouse, Coca Cola, Statue of Liberty, Evergreens, you know. Uh, Dallas Cowboys. It just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. These are all things which all Americans, Republicans or Democrats or male or female, might pretty much agree. Well, we, you know, these are American things, right? You know, mm-hmm. we were stuck with them. Mm-hmm. In Bosnia, there was almost literally nothing agreed. Mm-hmm. By which I mean nothing. Mm-hmm. No book, no writing, no poem. Because either it was our side or the other side. Mm-hmm. Nothing was common to that. Mm-hmm. The yeah, that building, yeah, but that building was built by a Serb, yeah, but it was built in the Ottoman period, yeah, yeah. But look, it says on there. I mean, everything was disputed. The colours were disputed. The names were disputed. The names of people. 
give away their ethnicity. You ask, can you look at them? But you can no, but you can tell by their name. If someone is Suad, he's probably a Bosniak. If someone is Radoslav, he's probably a Serb. So so there's there's a sort of division of it all. This is sort of hardwired. Um and um sort of somehow or other tackling that is very, very in that space, I think, is very tricky. And I think this is part of really trouble with Dayton, and then you see it now, is is that aspect of it, you know, in the rush to get Dayton through and then to get a success in American big picture foreign policy terms. And to be fair, you know, British and Russians, everyone was sick of all this. We all wanted a success. Mm-hmm. But it was a deal for us. It wasn't really a deal for Bosnians as they are. Right, at a deeper level. Yeah. At a deeper level, I think, and it's all very well talking about all that, but you know, mm-hmm. it, it, that sort of thing is subtle. And when you're in a real hurry, and you know, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're asking your troops to go in and risk being shot, and this sort of thing, you know, that tends to, you know, these sort of rather deeper, slower, clever things. I was reading this morning. Go on my website if you're interested. But I was reading the transcript by. We had the Iraq inquiry following the Iraq Iraq um, war. And someone I know who is in MI6, a top spy, Mm -hmm. gives evidence to the Iraq inquiry about how we got into the war and the intelligence and so on and so on and so on. And read some of the things he says. He's saying exactly this because he spoke Arabic. He was one of the great experts on the region. You know, what's really going on here? Are we likely to get this right or not? Mm -hmm. And, you know. When you say if you were God, well, the question is, are you a God who knows anything about Bosnia or are you a God who comes in from the outside with every possible good intention? (laughs) And the person who comes in from the outside with every possible good intention, with the authority of the Secretary General of the UN and the authority of Putin and the authority of, you know, the American president may know nothing about Bosnia and might be the wrong person for the job. But he's the person the international community will appoint. So there you are. So. That's it. Charles, thank you. Is that clear? So much. <laughs> that was really incredibly, incredibly complex situation spoken about with incredible clarity, if there can be clarity around it. So thank you very much. And, um, and uh, I look forward to the next time we talk. Yeah. And if anyone wants to go on my own website, charlescrawford.biz, on the right-hand column, there's um, Yugoslavia or Balkans or something. There's everything I've written about all this, and there is a huge, huge, huge amount there drilling down into the different details of all this, but also the philosophy. Yeah, and I just want to say, I mean, this will be on the website, but I have, I mean, if, if, if you're just brilliant in helping people figure out how to give great speeches. So I just want the world to know that buy because I've, yeah, yeah, buy the book. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Charles, very much for your time and uh, to be continued over a beer sometime soon. Sometime somewhere. Okay, yeah. see you. Bye then. Bye bye. So, thank you, Charles, so much for that. Um, it's really excellent hearing um, your observations and experience. Uh, the next episode is going to be another speech from me from the World Mediation Summit this summer in Madrid. Again, it's going to be about um, empowering women. It's going to be similar to the one from Shanghai, but in uh, with quite a bit more depth. And then after that, I have some super interesting 
new guests that um, I'm excited about, but I don't haven't gotten, haven't confirmed them yet, so I'm not going to mention who they are. Um, please check out our Facebook page and post there if you'd like. Uh, email me if you get like give me any comments. And thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>